Well, good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Really good to be with you this morning. Glad that you're here. If you're watching online, thanks so much for being here, especially if this is your first Sunday. It's, uh, it can be a little scary walking into a building for the first time. And uh, so if you came this morning for the first time, thanks for being with us. Uh, my family at our house, we've been coming through a bit of a challenging season over the last four or five weeks. We were uh, away in Colorado for a couple weeks in July. And when we came back, we came back to uh, a pest in our home, some some bugs, some flies around the house, inside our, our house. I call them flies. Angela doesn't like calling them flies because that implies something really gross to her. So she calls them gnats. I think they're flies. Maybe they're gnats. I'll just kind of say bugs. Uh, but they've been around in our house since we came back uh, from, from Colorado. They've been, um, you know, bugging us. See what I did there? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I have some moans. Good. I heard some moans. That was good. Uh, so, you know, there'll be one circling the kitchen sink while I'm watching the news at night. One will come and visit me on the couch there. They're, they're not oppressive, but they're annoying. And they're kind of around. There's something about having bugs in your house. Just feels a little, a little off, like something's not quite healthy in the home. And so we, we put out little bowls of apple vinegar and we sprayed the plants and we cleaned off the counters, but nothing seemed to be ending uh, the, our friends joining us uh, in the house. But last Thursday, I was down in the basement. I was taking something down there into storage. And while I was down there, I found some trash. So I went over to the basement trash can and kicked the lid open to throw it away. And I found the home of all of our friends. There's this little mass of bugs inside this trash can that hadn't been emptied since the beginning of July and just been sitting there kind of festering. A little bit of a smell hit me. So I took that trash can out. I took the trash out. And we've been having less and less flies since Thursday. And I'm I'm hopeful that we will be fly-free by Labor Day. That's kind of the dream of our house right now. Um, house, house health means no gnats, no, no bugs. At least that's what we're kind of stuck on right now. We're going to take a couple weeks here this fall talking about a different kind of health, uh, a mental health uh, discussion over the next five Sundays. We're going to be talking about our mental well-being and what does it look like to live uh, mentally healthy in our world today. All, all these things that fill our minds, the emotions that so often uh, move up the direction of our lives, the social connections that we have when we see someone and we, put, we present uh, our, ourselves in such a way that doesn't actually express the reality of what's going on inside of us. We want to spend some time talking about our interior lives, the, uh, the, the image, the thoughts that we carry with us. And they can sometimes be like those flies just bugging around our, our lives kind of as we swat them away, trying to figure out why things feel a little bit off inside of us, in our hearts and in our spirits. Mental health matters because if we're going to uh, live and pursue this new life Jesus created us for, we need to be talking about our mental health. It matters if we're going to live into that new reality that Jesus invites us into. How we see ourselves, how we experience the ups and downs of our lives, it, it creates an ever-present thought life, almost like an interior conversation that we're having with ourselves every day. And, and that conversation is either going to help us embrace the life God is calling us to, or it's going to cause us to step back from that life that God has for us, this new life Jesus created us for. So over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about uh, anchoring our identities to Jesus, uh, actively entrusting God with our lives, connecting to healthy and loving people, growing our capacity for hope instead of sadness and seeking the healing work of the Spirit in our minds. We're going to be talking about mental health. And the fact that our mental health matters to God is one of the reasons that our new vision as a church 
uh, highlights support groups and our need for support from others from time to time in our lives. Um, there's a flyer out in the lobby that lists all of the support groups that are starting this fall. We've had them before, but we want to lean into them in a new way because uh, all of us have gone through different times in our life when we've wondered, what is God doing? Why am I facing the things that I'm facing? And when you can sit with others who are going through similar things, like, like grief when you've lost someone that you love, or a divorce when a marriage ends, or addiction when, when you find things in your life that you can't seem to stop doing, when you sit with others that face those same kinds of things and you hear their stories and you seek God together, uh, God can work in powerful ways to bring healing. So Natalie is our support group coordinator here at Hillcrest, and, and she's putting together these groups for us. You'll see a lot of information about them on the website. If you go to hillcrestcov.org backslash support dash groups, you're going to find a lot of information about these groups that are heart starting. And she's hosting uh, coffee talks this fall, which are just a couple Saturdays where you can show up and just start to lean into this conversation. So I want to encourage you to do that. All of it feeds into a healthy mental state where we can live with intention and power and focus and hope. There, there are just days when we feel mentally healthy, and then there are other days when the mental flies are around and we're just trying to swat them away. So let me just say up front that, that I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I'm not a mental health professional. Uh, I'm not a therapist or a counsel, counselor, although I, I know a few. I know a few of them here in the church. In fact, my wife is a couples counselor. She works with couples on a weekly basis, uh, helping them process what's going on in their marriage. And the fact that I've got a, a psychologist in my home makes me a little more dangerous uh, than I probably should be. Dangerous in a bad way. Like, like I know questions to ask that I can't find my way out of once I've asked them, you know, the way that Angela can. I'm just really thankful for counselors and psychologists and spiritual directors and, and life coaches that can play such an important part in our life on this quest towards mental health. I want to share with you three years ago in the fall of 2019, I sat in the office of a, a new counselor for me, a new therapist. His name was Aaron, and he specialized in, in trauma therapy. And because of some significant events in my life, I was ready to experience a different kind of, of life. For a few years, for a few years, I've been noticing that each day I would have a, a period of sadness in my day. And it would come at, at different moments, but every day I knew I was going to be sad at some point during the day. It might be a song that I would hear that would connect to my past and remind me of the loss that my family had gone through. And I, I would just feel sad when I heard the song. Or it might be a picture I would see from 2014. And I'd remember all that our family had been through and I would feel brokenhearted. I would feel lost in that moment. I'd watch a movie and, and you get the idea. These little things would bring up thoughts and, and, and things in my, my heart that were still hurting and broken. And, and, uh, sometimes I'd be angry. Sometimes I'd have tears, but most of the time it was just this low grade kind of sadness in the back of my day. And after a couple years of having that happen almost on a daily basis, I was like, there's gotta be a different way to experience life. This, is, this cannot be what God has for me. I asked God about it. I talked to mentors and friends about it. I read the Bible seeking answers. I read other books. I, I remember thinking, I'm following Jesus. I believe that, that God is with me, that he loves me. Why am I not able to kick this sadness out of my life? I asked questions like, well, is there some sin I haven't confessed? Or is there someone that I should be forgiving that I haven't forgiven yet? What is wrong with me? We sometimes think that as followers of Jesus, we're not going to struggle with things like this, with depression and anxiety and mental health disorders and, and grief. But the truth is, we can be fully surrendered to Jesus, pursuing the new life that God created us for, and we can still be struggling to embrace 
mental health in its fullness. Mental and emotional health kind of ebbs and flows through our days. It moves from wide open sunny fields into dark caves and back out onto stormy seas and then it might find a safe place again. There are seasons we're able to handle the challenges that life throws at us with our existing coping mechanisms and our our friendships that we have in our lives. But then there's other seasons we come into where our coping mechanisms are no longer sufficient and the depth of our relationships is no longer enough to carry us through. And we're needing a new approach. So I was sitting in Aaron's office because Angela helped me see that, that asking for help was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of wisdom that I asked someone to come alongside and help me. It wasn't a sign of weakness. It was a sign of wisdom. Acknowledging that what I was experiencing every day was not what God created me for, and that there were actually things I could do, there were activities I could engage with that could change my experience. That got me, that got me moving. And we see this throughout the Bible with some of the heroes of our faith that we read about in Scripture, that they also went through these challenging mental health seasons, these emotional struggles, the ebb and the flow of our lives. I think about Elijah, who was sort of like God's bullhorn during, in the Old Testament for a season. When he spoke, people listened. He, God used him in powerful ways. There was one day when he was before the people of Israel and God brought down fire, physical fire from heaven and burned up an offering he had placed out for him. And, and the entire nation shifted its focus because of Elijah's voice and what God was doing through him. And then the very next day, uh, he became in opposition with another leader of the people and he ran for his life and went running and felt like everything was over. He was so depressed, he just wanted to give up the very next day. We read about his feelings in 1 Kings 19, where it says, Elijah came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. That was his prayer. God, how about today? I die. That was his prayer to God. He said to God, I have had enough, Lord. I've had enough of this. He went from this amazing victory on one day and the very next day feeling defeated, all within a 24-hour period of time. David, the great warrior shepherd of Israel, stood before a giant, a literal giant, that God allowed him to defeat. And, and, and people celebrated his victory. They sang songs about him. And then a little while later, the king decided that David was a rival that he didn't need in his world with his throne. And so he put David on Israel's most wanted list. He was number one. And the hunt began, and David took off and went hiding in caves as he ran for his life. And during that season, he wrote Psalm 13, where we read these words. David writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you turn away and ignore what's going on in my life? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day, have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? From defeating giants to being defeated by sorrow, David understands the journey that many of us have been through. Finding and keeping a whole heart and a whole mind, embracing mental health is a human struggle that the real people of the Bible had to face and go through, just like we do as well. God cares about our mental health. He can and will heal our broken hearts and minds, and often he will use the people around us to do that. It will be the power of God working in you and maybe some more sleep than what you're getting right now. It'll be the power of God working in you and perhaps a deeper, more authentic relationship with someone that you can be honest with and really say, here's what I'm really facing in my life. It will be the power of God in you and perhaps the words of a counselor 
or some medication that will bring balance back to your brain chemistry. This morning, we want to start talking about keeping wholeness in mind by by talking about our identity, how we see ourselves, the image that we carry around with us in our minds about who we are and why we matter, what we were made to do, this unique and mysterious understanding of, of who you are. Our mental health will begin with a secure understanding of our identity. If we see ourselves accurately, there's much, there's a much greater chance that we're going to be healthy and whole in our hearts and our minds. So if we don't see ourselves honestly, if we're believing lies about who we are and the value that we have, it's going to be much more difficult to find that wholeness that we're looking for when it comes to our mental health. Some of us have uh, name tags on this morning. I've got mine on. I don't always remember to put one on, but I, I put one on today. This is really sort of the first marker of our identity, our name, the name that we have. So we wear it around. When you meet someone new, you say, what's your name? And and you start the conversation that way. It's really our first identity marker, what makes us unique. Of course, I understand that there are like five Nates here at Hillcrest, so maybe not as unique as I'd like it to be. But it is a, a marker that we have. We move from our names to start asking like, well, what do you do for a living? Or tell me about your family. Or what did you do fun this weekend? Sometimes it's shallow. Sometimes it leads into more uh, depth of, of conversation. But we begin to lean into our identity as we share the answers to these questions. Our identity encompasses our, our histories, our experiences, our relationships, our cultures, our, the small ways that we change every day, our commitments, our habits, our actions. All these get wrapped up into this mental picture that we carry around with us about who we are. It's almost like we have a label on the inside as well that we look at for ourselves, our, our own names that we hold on to. And we struggle to accurately capture this identity, our true identity. I think I'm this way, and then this thing over here happens to me. I think, well, maybe I'm no longer that way. Or I, I believe something, and then I start to doubt, have a doubt about it, and I say, well, maybe that's not really who I am. We, we know our names, but sometimes we have a hard time with that interior label that we carry around with us, our identity, putting a, a name on who we are created to be, who we really are. G. Uh, K. Chesterton was a writer and theologian and, and even an art, art critic, and he lived about 100 years ago. About 110 years ago, he wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And in that book, he wrote these words. Uh, One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have forgotten all. We have all forgotten our names. We have all forgotten what we really are. He wrote that over 100 years ago. This is not a new conversation that we're engaging in, what, who we are, what, what makes our identity. We have forgotten, he says, we've all forgotten our names. This is the first marker of our identity, and we struggle to hold on to it. We forget who we are. Instead of mental health, he says, we have mental calamity. There's an image to hold on to, right? You've been given a name. Your parents, your mom, your dad, they, your parent gave you a name, a label, that, that day when you were born. And it's, it's the first marker you have that really matters. And some parents chose your name just because they like the sound of it. You know, maybe it's more of a shallow reason they gave you the name. It just, it just rung true for them. But some of you have names that they gave to you because of other names in your extended family. It kind of connects you to a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle and, and has that meaning to it. Others of you, there's an actual meaning to the name that your parents wanted you to have because that meaning means something to them. My name, Nathan, it means a gift of God which I like. That's a good 
That's a good one. My mom told me that in eighth grade. I think I was in middle school when she told me, your name means a gift from God. And I was like, don't you mean a gift for women? <laughs> eighth grade, you know, immaturity speaking there for me, but a gift of God. My sister's name is Jennifer, which is from the Welsh name Guinevere, which means fair and blessed. My older sister is Pamela, and her name means as sweet as honey. That's a good, that's a good one. I like that one. I have an older brother, Steve, and his name means the crown which is like the Netflix show, right? He's like the king, you know, he's in charge. But the fact that our parents give us names uh, brings up an interesting question that we should think about. And, and that question is, who gets to inform your identity? Who gets to tell you what your identity is? Who's the authority to, to label you and name you and, and kind of tell you who you are, the logo that you're supposed to carry around for your brand? Who gets to speak into that? Who has the right to inform your boundaries? speak into your habits, define your history. This is a struggle many of us face because we're told in our current culture, we're told that our identities, that's totally up to us. We have to create our identities from inside of us. We build it and we bring it out of ourselves. We've got to figure it out on our own. We're told that your identity is totally your thing and no one can argue, argue with you about it and no one can tell you anything different. It's all on you. It must come from inside of you. And this is why so many, I think this is why so many of us are stuck and confused about who we are. Because we are imperfect. We are limited in what we can see. We can't see all of who we are. We can see some of us, but we can't see the entire picture. We're limited in our formation of our own identities. If it's all on our shoulders, I think we're in trouble. Because either the identity we create will be shallow and it will miss the beauty of God's image inside of each one of us. Do you know that you carry with you the image of God? And sometimes we're going to shoot low and not hit that. We're going to think ourselves less than we actually are. Or the identity we create will be exaggerated and showy and miss the boundaries of our humanity that we, in fact, are not God and are limited in our experience. If my identity definition is all about me, well, I'm going to be looking around for scaffolding to brace this image I'm trying to build because I know I can't do it myself. The, shallow, the shallow or showy mirror I come up with that I define myself with is going to leave me searching and struggling and shifting like a riverbed in a flash flood. I can't really see all that I am. So if it's all up to me, it's not going to be what it could be. Your identity, my identity, it will be up for grabs unless we begin to acknowledge that there is one who is greater than us. There is one who created us, and we can trust him to define who we are. What if, what if I, what if you, let the one who created you be the one who defines you? What if you let the one who created you be the one who defines you? God has something to say about who you are, about your identity. He sees you better than you see yourself. He sees your heart. He sees everything that you faced, everything that you will face. He saw your beginning. He sees your end. The Bible tells us that God knows the number of hairs on your head. And that's not because it's a fun question for trivial pursuit or something like that. It, it means that he is intimately aware of everything about you. He knows every hair, some of you more than others, but he knows every hair on your head. He is intimately involved with who you are and he knows you. When you are confused, God is clear. When you are unsure, he is rock solid. When you are shifting in the flood, God is an anchor that will not be moved. 
He knows who you are. If we want to find mental health, it starts by embracing our true identity. And no one knows that like God knows that. He knows the name that you carry around, not just on your name tag, but the name that you have going on inside your heart right now. Jesus, the good shepherd, said, I know my sheep, I know their names, and they know me. In the stories of the Bible, we see people whose names are changed by God. He goes, he said, I know you so well, I'm going to give you a different name. The name you've had so far, it's been gotten you through maybe this far, but it's time for a new name. And back in, in Bible times, names were so much more important than even today. They were identity markers in a way that we can't even understand. They would, they would be given a name that would say, this is the rest of your life. You're going to live into this name. We see examples of this throughout scripture. I think about Isaac and Rebekah and their twins. Rebekah had carried these two boys and uh, they had wrestled inside of her. She said, I don't know what's going on. I feel like there's a fight going on inside of me. And uh, Esau was the first to be born and he was red and covered in hair. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. Maybe not the best name example because that's pretty shallow, really. I mean, like, that's not all that deep. Uh, but then Jacob came out, and so Esau comes first, and Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel, the Bible says. He's holding on to his ankle, grabbing at him. And so they name him Jacob, which means the one who tries to take the place of another, and not in a good way. It's like a schemer, a trickster, who, who takes the place of someone else who is rightly in front of them. And Jacob, with this difficult name that he has, he lives into that for 80 years of his life. He betrays his brother, he lies to his father, he tricks his uncle, he continues to live out that broken identity. And then he encounters God in a way that transforms him. I want to look at this passage with you. If you've got your Bible with you, I just want to invite you to open up Genesis chapter 32. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, you can open that up. Genesis 32. We're going to look at verse 24 through 29. Genesis 32, 24 through 29. And, and Jacob here, it's, it's over halfway through his life. And he's been living into this identity as a deceiver, as the one who usurps and takes the place of another. And uh, for Esau, his older brother, he stole from his brother the birthright that was rightly his. And Jacob tricked his dad, and, and he got the birthright instead. And when Esau found out about it, he said, I'm going to kill you. So what did, he, what did Jacob do? He took off and he ran. So 20 years, he's been on the run away from his brother, but things have changed and he's coming back home. And he's going to see his brother Esau for the first time in 20 years. And he's nervous about it, right? And he probably should be, probably should be a little anxious. So the night before he's going to meet his brother, he sends all of his stuff, all of his flocks and his position, possessions go across the river. And then he sends his family, his kids and his wives, and he sends them across the river. And he's all by himself. I'm going to meet him last. He's like, I'm going to let him, everybody else is going to be a buffer. I'm going to come last. Hopefully it will go well. So this is the night before, verse 24 of Exodus, uh, Genesis 32. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So he has this question about who is this man? Because he was alone, and now he's wrestling with someone. And later on, Jacob says, I've seen God face to face, and I've lived. And so scholars think, well, is it God, the Spirit of God, an angel of God? Some even say, if it's God in the flesh, it must be Jesus, because Jesus is God in the flesh, a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And the, um, thousands of years before he was born. So anyway, verse 24, he's wrestling with this man. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as they wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's still looking for that blessing. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, Jacob replied. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God 
and with human beings and have overcome. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But the man replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed Jacob there. You see how important names are here. Jacob's all about, what is your name? And the angel asked him, what is your name? It's important in this story that there's a name being given and a name that's understood. And Jacob's name is changed. And he says, you're no longer going to be this deceiver, this heel grabber. You're not going to be the one that wrestles and struggles with man and with God. This is your new name. And Jacob becomes Israel. And he actually finds peace in this new name. The next day he meets his brother and they're able to make amends and they come back together. And, and Jacob finds rest in his relationship with God. And there's peace in his relationship with God. You will no longer be the one who tries to take the place of the other. You will be in relationship with me and we will wrestle together. It's like he's going back into the womb again, back into that wrestling match he had with his brother. Now God says, I want you to wrestle with me, be in relationship with me. God took this wrestling identity and breathed new life into it and redeemed it for Jacob, made it new. And God will do that in our lives as well. If we'll surrender to him, if we'll say, you have authority to speak identity into my life. There are many others in the Bibles, in the Bible whose uh, names were changed. I think about Abraham and Sarah and um, Joshua and Gideon and Peter. And even Naomi changed her own name when her life became bitter. And she said, call me Mara because my life is difficult. God has a name for you a new life that he invites you to embrace every day. When we let the one who created us be the one who defines us, we can live into who we really are. We can see clearly who we really are. Instead of our identity be being built on our best attempts or the loudest voices in, in the media or the social feeds that we consume, uh, it can find formation in the hands of our loving, good, faithful creator God. And when your identity finds formation in God's hands, your mental health can develop from a place of strength and consistency. Your emotions can find an anchor in the eye of the storm that you might find yourself in. God created you to be a person that he loves and he, he's living out. Paul wrote about this in, uh, to a letter he wrote to his friends in Colossae. And I want to read this passage to you from a paraphrase of the original Greek language. It's a Bible called the Message Bible. And this is uh, Colossians 9, verses uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes that you've stripped off and thrown in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is, is custom-made by the Creator with His label on it. Take off those old labels and receive from the Creator the label He made you for. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free, they mean nothing. And Paul shares this back in his day. Those were words that were the categories that people put themselves in, the identities that they took on, the name tags they put on their chest. He said, those don't matter anymore. Today, we've got our own markers we might talk about around sexuality and gender and career and relationship status. And Paul says, those don't matter. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. And then he says in verse 12, so chosen by God for this new life of love. You hear that? That's your name, he says. So you chosen by God for this new life of love. Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline, 
when you put on this new life, when you put on this new identity, you are embracing the life you were created for. God defines your identity. He speaks your name over you and invites you to live into it. Who does God say you are? In the New Testament, it speaks about how God sees us and what he says to those who are surrendered to him. And God says that you are chosen. You are loved. Your name is forgiven. You are his child. You are accepted. Your name is bold and secure. You are part of his family. God says you belong. A healthy mental self-image begins with a true understanding of who God says you are and whose you are. Don't settle for anything less than what God has to say about you. He's here right now. He's speaking these words over you. Tomorrow, as you're going through your day and you start to struggle a little bit and say, okay, what's going on? Why do I feel the way I feel? Let God speak that, those names over you. You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You belong. Those are your names. As we come to communion this morning, it, it just shouts at us that, that God loves us, that he sent his only son, that we might have life everlasting, that we might not perish, but that we might experience a redeemed life, that we might receive those names from him. As we receive communion this morning, I want you to think about the name that God has for you today, that he's speaking over you. I want to invite Nate and Jessica to come up and lead us into this time of communion where we can lay down our identities and receive from God the identity he has for us. Let's receive these elements together today.